And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, the game 1037 Lafayette and 104 One Leg Charles's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the wrestling over the last couple of weeks. We've been away for a little while, you know, trying to kind of get things back to a normal taping schedule. You know, never really does work out that way, but we're going to try and do a little bit better. So let's go ahead and start off this podcast with obviously the big topic of the week. No doubt it's nothing to do with the actual stuff going on inside the squared circle. It's about Vince McMahon in hot water and the last few days have been absolutely insane. So let's kind of unpack this and try to go through all the facts first, go in chronological order and more importantly, kind of get an idea of what's going on and what this could mean for the WWE. It all started Wednesday afternoon when the Wall Street Journal, not long after the closing bell, dropped a report that implied that the WWE Board of Directors were planning to begin an investigation into Vince McMahon after claims that there was a $3 million hush money pact with a former paralegal that they fired earlier this year. The settlement came to light after anonymous emails were sent to the board by someone claiming to be the friend of a woman of the woman, excuse me, who received that $3 million payout. And the first email sent in March said that the 76-year-old McMahon, which is wild to think that Vince McMahon's only 76, hired the 41-year-old at a salary of $100,000, but then increased to $200,000 when they began a relationship that was not, you know, worker, co-worker, that what do you think of typically. I'll go ahead and put it that way. And it also alleged that McMahon gave her away like a toy to the head of talent relations, John Laurinaitis. And the journal sources say that the woman involved worked in WWE's legal department until 2021 when she was made an assistant to Laurinaitis. And it goes a little bit further because the board has unearthed an undetermined number of additional past NDAs or non-disclosure agreements for those who don't know what that means in terms of the acronym with former female WWE employees who allege conduct, misconduct by McMahon and Laurinaitis. And the eight independent members of the board that exclude Vince, his daughter Stephanie, and Triple H, and Nick Khan, the WWE president, they've retained outside counsel to run the investigation. And they're still collecting information about the other NDAs, but the journal sources say that the probe has determined the payments total in the millions of dollars. And it's also assessing WWE's compliance and human resources programs and company culture to kind of see where things stand. I think there could be, I'm going to use a term that we use a lot when we're talking in the world of sports radio, using the term that we hear a lot in terms of the NCAA. And that is probably the four most deadliest words for a lot of programs is lack of institutional control. And based off of all these reports, and again, these are purely allegations at this point in time. It feels like it is 100% a case of lack of institutional control could be a phrase being used in this report that could be coming from this investigation in the aftermath. And a WWE spokesperson said that the company was cooperating fully with the board inquiry and said that McMahon's relationship was consensual with the ex-paralegal. The spokesman also added that the company takes these allegations seriously and is dealing with them appropriately and the way that statement was read was exactly how they should have handled it right out the gate. Just kind of come out in front and say something about it, but not say too much is again, you don't want to wind up incriminating yourself. But again, the fact that it was consensual, but you have an NDA doesn't necessarily add up in my book. 
But then things got even weirder. Because rumors came out about insider trading within the WWE. Because WrestleNomics and Brandon Thurston, by the way, if you're a fan of kind of the real business side of things in the world of professional wrestling, go check him out. Go follow him on Twitter and also subscribe to his Patreon because he breaks down some stuff that is insanely cool, especially if you love more the business side of the business. And reported that 2.1 million shares of WWE stock were sold on Wednesday, noting that the amount was 1.5 million shares more than an average trading day. He also mentioned that in the report that all of the stock was sold before the news broke. And one of the names being brought up in these reports centered it on executive producer and chief of global television distribution within WWE, one Kevin Dunn, a.k.a. Bucky Beaver, if you know Jim Cornette's stories about him. However, PW Insider later killed that rumor for the most part to mention that he's not an executive, so he can sell stock without restrictions that would apply to a member of the board. That said, I'm sure I'm sure that the SEC might be looking into this. I'm not talking about the Conference of Dixie in football. No, I'm talking about the Security Exchange Commission. And that, if that happens, that is a whole nother can of worms. And yeah, I think Vince McMahon has been dealing with a ton of this kind of stuff because at the end of the day, he's got it all over the place between this and he's still dealing with the seemingly never-ending saga of the XFL 2.0 with a lawsuit from Oliver Luck, the Oliver Luck Vince McMahon story. That's another thing that he's having to kind of deal with. And now we fast forward to Friday when the real bleep hit the fan with the monumental news that Vince McMahon was going to step down as CEO. This is like Friday morning. And he's quote unquote stepping down as a CEO. I'm using air quotes. I'll break down why I think that in a minute. But here's some of the statements. From the WWE, McMahon has voluntarily stepped back from his responsibilities as CEO and chairman of the board until conclusion of the investigation. McMahon will retain his role and responsibilities related to WWE's creative content during this period and remains committed to cooperating with the review underway. The special community has appointed Stephanie McMahon to serve as interim CEO and interim chairwoman. And Vince says... I have pledged my complete cooperation to the investigation by the special committee, and I will do everything possible to support the investigation. I have also pledged to accept the findings and outcome of the investigation, whatever they are, end quote. Stephanie winds up saying a little bit later, quote, I love this company and and am committed to working with the independent directors to strengthen our culture and our company. It is extremely important to me that we have a safe and collaborative workplace. I have committed to doing everything in my power to help the special committee complete its work, including marshalling the cooperation of the entire company to assist in the completion of the investigation and to implement its findings, end quote. And we're going to wrap up this kind of rundown of the statement saying, WWE and the board of directors takes all allegations of misconduct very seriously. The independent directors of the board engage independent legal counsel to assist them with an independent review. In addition, the special committee and WWE will work with an independent third party to conduct a comprehensive review of the company's compliance program, HR function, and overall culture. Now, that last paragraph, that was very much ho-hum, typical kind of stuff when you see companies, even collegiate programs, deal with investigations. A lot of that was very much what you'd expect. Now, 
you got to think that the phrase Stephanie McMahon taking over as the interim CEO and interim chairwoman, that means that she is the person who's going to run things. I said, quote unquote, step uh, Vince McMahon stepped down as quote unquote CEO and chairman of the company, he quote unquote stepped down, excuse me. But the overall power structure in my mind won't change. And there was a report from the CNBC that basically kind of hit that point there pretty well. And it feels like it's a front to make it look good in the front of potential investors and the public in general, because trust me, the public is not a fan of everything that's been going on over the last, let's say, four or five days since we're taping this on Sunday going into Monday morning. So that was something that's happened, and we're trying to figure out where it all kind of collides and is put together. But if it is that work and they're trying to work these potential investors, make it look good in front of them, but that could wind up blowing up in their face in the long run and probably make things wind up looking even worse for the WWE. And then, of course, just throwing another log on the fire here. Midway through Friday, Vince McMahon was going to show up in character on SmackDown to pop a rating because you all know that the golden trick in WWE over the last 10, 15 years is when the ratings are sagging, bring a McMahon out, and Vince is usually the guy that shows up and gets things going, gets the ratings up, and gets the crowd into it. Everyone wondered what was going to happen and why he was showing up on camera as the investigation press release comes out and the announcement of him stepping down. He does indeed show up. Basically, welcomed the fans and left. Had a big pop when he came out. That stuff may have been sweetened. I might get into some other stuff when it comes to SmackDown. Because that was a very interesting SmackDown. I'll go ahead and say that much right now. But here's the thing. He couldn't really say a damn thing about the allegations. Because he could have said something that could have incriminated him. Look at Deshaun Watson. You're going it in the world of sports. Delving further. Deshaun Watson, since he's been in Cleveland, has had to kind of deal with the never-ending barrage of questions concerning the multiple, I mean, 26, 27. It feels like every day there's a new one that pops up about Deshaun Watson not necessarily being the best person in the world with masseuses. And he's been dealing with all these allegations and new stuff is coming to light in the last week or so. He's maintaining his innocence and Vince kept it extremely close to the vest and said nothing. And at the end of the day, that's all you got to do if you're Vince in terms of making sure nobody really knows the complete story. There's going to be a full-blown investigation, and I think that's between the investigators, the WWE, and eventually once they find their findings, and if they actually do decide to make this stuff public, then yeah, there is going to be hell to pay more likely than not. And that's where we're going to get to in just a moment here on the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, what's next for the WWE if this actually winds up being a horrible situation for one Vince McMahon? We'll talk about that in just a moment. All right, so what's next for the WWE as they begin their inf- official external investigation? And I'm just going to look into the worst case scenario for Vince McMahon because at the end of the day, that's what it kind of feels like. Now, obviously, the next step in the immediate future is power shifts over to Stephanie McMahon after her reported departure about a month ago. That summer vacation did not last long. 
But of course, what happens is this is a more permanent thing. This feels a lot, a little similar to the steroid trial back in the 1990s, but feels more likely that Vince's days are numbered because there is some damning evidence. The fact you have a lot of NDAs in place and potentially a lot of other skeletons could be coming out of the closet in the not too distant future. And this is going to be where a lot of the wild internet speculation begins in my mind. And I'm going to go ahead and break it down in a lot of different ways, but we're going to treat going forward from this point on that Vince McMahon is going to be taken out of the company. No matter what, I think we'd all agree the end result in all this, John Laurinaitis is a hundred percent done. He's going to be a fall guy for Vincent Kennedy, big man, and is going to be out the door before this investigation probably comes to an end. And there were some reports that he wasn't at the SmackDown show this past Friday, and that alone could be very telling. Now, when we go to the tip top after the investigation, Vince McMahon is being forced to step down on a permanent basis and step away completely from the WWE, then yeah, this is going to be where that conversation starts to shift and we get into what happens with the hierarchy. Because again, this feels like an episode of Succession the last six months or so. And I'll start off with that. I would not be surprised a single bit if Stephanie takes over on a permanent basis because she's currently the interim. That's kind of where this thing is headed. Because there's no way in hell that Vince McMahon is going to allow the WWE to go into the hands of somebody like Nick Khan. And we'll talk about him in a few minutes because he plays a huge role into all this. But once Stephanie takes over, the question then shifts over to who would be gone from the front office as well. And one name, we talked about him earlier, the insider trading stuff, not necessarily looking good. Kevin Dunn is one of those guys I feel like could wind up going. He is an absolute guy that could be there for life. But Again, the insider trading and maybe another external investigation from the SEC could wind up being something that looms large and forces Stephanie McMahon's hand if things do go a certain way. Now let's flip over to Nick Khan because he is obviously the guy that everybody's been talking about. It's become a meme in the internet wrestling community to this point where Nick Khan has gone through the McMahon family like a game of Mortal Kombat with Vince being the final boss, obviously. But there's no way he'll take over as the head of the WWE. And I think the biggest reason why is because the second he takes over, within six months, I would not be surprised if he sells the company almost immediately to the highest bidder. And that's not how the McMahons want to lose their billion-dollar empire. Now, if this happens in any alternate universe, it's entirely possible for it to happen. I'll go ahead and kind of break it down real quick. So Khan's going to either sell to NBC Universal or Disney. Again, they already kind of have relationships with these two parties. More NBC Universal, obviously, because they've been the flagship home of Monday Night Raw since 2007, 2005, excuse me, since they returned from their time on TNN and Spike TV. And depending on what they want to do with the company, I think they have one of two options. It's keep the business running as is and kind of keep it within your family of networks. And that's going to cause some internal strife. I'll go ahead and put it that way. Because does, if let's say Disney were to buy it, what do they do with Raw? 
or vice versa with SmackDown? Do you keep it on that company? Does this wind up causing you to have to change your entire game plan with Disney? What happens there? Now, that's the way it, you've got to figure out all that stuff. It'd be a weekly shows on the family of networks and pay-per-views on their streaming services. Now, I'll say this. If Disney does wind up buying like everybody's kind of saying they are, they better not do what they do with the UFC pay-per-views where you pay an extra $60 on top of your subscription if they do indeed purchase it because that's going to wind up probably rubbing a lot of people the wrong way after years and years and years of being conditioned for $9.99 shows. They could do that, or they could just pack up the entire promotion, say, hey, we don't want to deal with wrestling or anything like that in terms of actually producing weekly content because at the end of the day, WWE has tens of thousands of hours, if not more, of programming that they could put on their respective streaming platforms, be it Peacock, be it Hulu, be it Amazon Prime, be it Disney Plus, whoever would want to get this deal going. That's where we're at in 2022. And this thing could very well go into 2023 or even 2024. But again, that's the hypothetical of if Nick Khan does indeed take over. At the end of the day, I think the WWE will likely remain in the hands of someone within the McMahon family. And I feel like Stephanie will take over that. And they'll probably weather the storm for a good while. And I'll also say that I would love to see on the creative side of things. Because obviously that's the next step is if things start to get worse and worse and worse. Vince may have to kind of let go of being the creative guy. And I feel like Triple H, if he's able to do it with his health, obviously that's going to be an issue for him. His health issues from last year could also play a role in this. But I would not be surprised in the slightest if Triple H has a hand in creative and talent relations in the aftermath of this. And I'd say intriguing would be the understatement of the year if we see Triple H, Jeff Jarrett, and Paul Heyman or any combination of these three or a combination of a bunch of other guys involved could be a great melting pot of creative and probably make things a little bit better and more consistent as opposed to chaotic because Vince McMahon sometimes loves to rip up the script and start over from scratch the day of the show. Case in point, this past Friday on SmackDown, which we'll probably get into on a future podcast, but honestly, There was one show in particular that I was looking forward to, and that was, without a doubt, Impact Wrestling's 20th anniversary to the day. And their Impact Slam anniversary event happened, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Almost 20 minutes later, we're finally getting into some professional wrestling talk at Impact Slam anniversary 2022. And first off, this show... I'm sometimes blown away by some of the reaction on our polls that you can see on our Twitter at Cajun Strong Pod. And I, I'm continually blown away by how people vote on these things and how much sometimes you get votes, number of votes you don't expect. Case in point, Slammiversary. This will wind up getting overwhelming thumbs up and a good amount of votes compared to what I've seen from 
the Hell in a Cell poll that I put out a while back. Or some of the other polls we've put out where it's been relatively low numbers. But you can tell there is a diehard fan base for Impact Wrestling in 2022. And that's great because they've done a lot of good things over the last couple of years. It's not been the LOL TNA type stuff that we've seen over the past 10, like the first 10 to 15 years where they would take like one or two steps forward and then 20 steps back. No, they've been making progressions towards being a much better company. And it's in a lot better shape, I think, in my mind, as opposed to what we had seen probably the last four or five years. Because like in the like Destination America years, pop TV years, not necessarily the best look for a company like that. The way it was kind of jumping around on television stations, there was no real direction. Things just continued to be a little bit of a mess. But now that it's been on Access TV for a while and really established itself, I think you had a really good run with guys like Kenny Omega being involved with the program, being involved with the company, helping get more eyes on the product. That helped them out a lot. And this is another step in the right direction for Impact to be a really good competitor for that number two spot. Again, number one is always going to be WWE. AEW is closing that gap a little bit more, but sometimes they have these missteps that hurt them a little bit. And sometimes it's not even their fault. For instance, their ratings wound up being down this past week, but I think a lot of that had to do with the Stanley Cup. Maybe not as much as... I th- maybe it's more than I think because I don't think the Stanley Cup played that big of a role in the ratings being down this week. But again, that's just my personal opinion. But Impact has made steps in the right direction and is a company that I feel like people need to be able to watch more. But again, it's understandable because Access TV isn't necessarily available as much as, say, TNT, TBS, USA, or even Fox, especially something like Fox, that is a basic cable type channel. But let's go ahead and get into some of the pre-show stuff. I missed the beginning of the pre-show. I usually try and jump on right at 6.30, but had some issues getting on. And you, I missed the bulk of the Impact Digital Media Championship match. YouTube had issues, so I just went to a different source, got to the finish of the match. Rich Swan retained... With a second rope 450 splash, I'm sure it was a very fun match. Great way to start off the show. Then you have Impact Wrestling breaking out, and this happened all throughout the night. Breaking out the TNA bag o gimmicks. And you can see that a lot in this show. And trust me, it worked out really well in a lot of different cases. First off, you had Johnny Swinger being pushed to the ring. By Zicky Dice while he's in a chair. It looked like the Andre the Giant style entrance. That was funny as hell. You also had Slash of all people in 2022 Slash come out. Never thought I'd see him again. From the Disciples of the Church. James Mitchell accompanying him to ringside was cool. And at one point I completely just was flabbergasted. By some of the names that popped up. Chase Stevens from TNA. He was in the ring getting in action. And then they show David Bleeping Young. And it's ironic because I actually got a conversation with one of my coworkers about him the other day. Because I remember seeing him back in the day 
at All Access Wrestling. He actually had a tag team match with AJ Styles. And then they had a match because David Young turned on AJ Styles. The match walked out on him. And that led to a match between these two at the season's beatings event at the Robichaux Center. And those two put on a fantastic match coming out of intermission. And I was actually looking up the card the other day. And this is why I love, you know, something like cage match. Shout out to them because they do some fantastic, like, work in terms of putting together these cards that we just see. And, like, I was, again, blown away by the fact that, that people actually archive this kind of stuff and, more importantly, give us these memories. And here was the card for the season's beating show. This was the second show they ever did. So you got Jorge Estrada of the Flying Elvises taking on a local Joe Kane. Eddie Atlas versus JC North. Kevin Northcutt versus Sonny Siaki. Kevin Northcutt was hell of a wrestler from the Chalmette area. He was always, he had just a great look all the way around. But here's where the real highlights are. You have Elix Skipper, Loki, Cassie O'Reilly in a three-way dance. You got two X-Division greats and a really good local hand in a triple threat match. David Young, AJ Styles with the match coming out of intermission. And they also had a bikini contest I talked about a while back on the podcast about Sassy Vegas, how he showed up, drew like a metric ton of heat in that match, in that segment. But AJ Styles, David Young, these two put on a banger. I mean, this was 2002 AJ Styles, like, he was just really getting into like peak TNA run. And honestly, it was really cool. I actually got to meet him during the intermission right before his match. Talked to him for a minute. Really good guy. The main event of the card, though, was the, the big takeaway for me. You had for the AAW title, Malice, who had won the title in a tournament the month before. May he rest in peace. The former The Wall in WCW taking on Hacksaw Jim Duggan. That alone is an insane car, but then I wound up looking at, and again, it's it's mind-blowing to me to see some of these matches and remembering I got to see three of these shows, and I'll get into the actual Impact stuff in a minute, but I actually wound up looking at the last card they had and being blown away at the fact I got to see this live and in living color. Number one, a best of three series throughout the night. We had the first match be at the beginning of the show, after the intermission, and then the last match was the main event for the AAW title. AJ Styles versus Elix Skipper, where Elix Skipper wound up winning the title, and people hated that. This is like right around like mid to mid two thousand three. Like AJ Styles was starting to be like a skyrocketing guy. You had a loser leaves town match against Bull Buchanan. Bull Buchanan, probably fresh off of the B-squared gimmick, taking on J.C. North. You had the most hodgepodge six-man tag of all time. Norman Smiley, Rick Steiner, and Sonny Don't Look at My Ass Siaki taking on Jorge Estrada and Risky Business, which was Chris Vaughn and Rick Santel. A dog collar match with Joe Kane and Jerry Lynn. And... I don't understand how the hell this actually was a thing that happened. But you have David Young and Dusty Rhodes in a tag team match. I got to see Dusty Rhodes wrestle live in 2003. 
taking on Brick St. Pierre, a.k.a. Lord Humongous, Ryan Humongous, Jacob Duncan, Mr. USA, Triton. Wait, that was Triton? Holy crap. That's kind of cool, too. And Kamala in a tag team match. And then Elix Skipper, AJ Styles, the best of three. And that was a really good show, too. It's just mind-blowing to see some of the stuff you see at like an independent show in Louisiana at the Robot Show Center. But I digress. I want to be going way too long talking about that. But seeing David Young was cool. Mike Jackson, the old, old wrestler, he did old school on the barricade and walked Shira all the way, like pretty much three quarters away around the barricade, around the ringside area, which was really cool. It's old school. People pop for it. And then Shear actually somehow gets into the ring and the match starts. Not too much really happens. Shear boots Stevens at the ring. At one point, Bay, Chris Bay and Macklin go to war with each other on the ring apron, and Bay eliminates himself with the ultimate finesse. They wind up eliminating both of the, he winds up eliminating not only Macklin, but himself. We're down to the final three of Shark Boy, Johnny Schwinger, and David Young. And Young and Swinger wind up teaming up on Shark Boy, but the Swingman turns on Young, throws out Shark Boy after that, but he fails to realize that it, it's a pinfall match whenever you get to the final two in the reverse battle royal. But Shark Boy gets the win with the Chummer. Two links to Buddha here, just because of the nostalgic teenage slash impact fan in me, seeing Shark Boy, David Young. Chase Stevens, especially Chase Stevens. The Naturals were a incredibly underrated tag team during the like early TNA impact, like as they were starting to move away from Fox and get into Spike TV. Around that time, they were putting on some really fun matches and just an overall great pair of guys. Then we get to the ultimate X match to start off the main card. Trey Miguel versus Andrew Evett versus Kenny King versus Alex Zane versus Speedball Mike Bailey against the champion Ace Austin. Andrew Everett wanted to be a late addition due to Jack Evans getting injured the night before. This is done out of an abundance of caution, but I think getting Everett was the best move there because he could put on some really good matches. And I'll run through some of the highlights because this is a chaotic match with Ace Austin immediately attacking his opponent with attacking somebody with a cane and the fight just absolutely goes crazy dives all over the place stuff that you kind of expect in a multi-man match especially in TNA slash impact you wind up seeing a really cool blockbuster powerbomb combo from King and Zane but the collab doesn't last long these two start going at it Mike Bailey winds up climbing on the top row on the X's he's one of the first ones that gets to it and then crashes while King and Zane are trying to hit double suplex on Andrew Everett. Mike Bailey, it's like a variation of his inhuman weapon or his ultimate weapon, excuse me. And he hits that. It looked great. The double knees off of the axe was really cool. Something I'd never really seen before. Insane tower doom spot. Like pretty much half the half or not three quarters of the field were affected by this. The only one that didn't take a bump was Trey Miguel, who waited and then hit Zane with an absolutely crazy Canadian destroyer off the top rope. Miguel, King, and Speedball all climb on the X. Speedball kicks Miguel off of there. Then it's, next thing you know, King gets taken off. 
No, excuse me. King gets taken off by Speedball. Then Miguel gets low blowed by Ace Austin. And now it's down to Ace and Bailey. These two are just kind of going after each other. Everett tries to get into the action. Straddles the X and looks like he's about to get the win. But nope. Speedball Mike Bailey actually winds up head scissoring him off the top of the X. And he just takes a brutal looking bump. Alex Zane winds up distracting Ace long enough. Gets him off of there. Speedball takes control shortly after and is your new X Division champion. Four and a half links of Buna. This is, I've always said this, X Division style matches should always open up a pay-per-view or a big show on the Indies. I would always take this to open up the show. Just give me pure chaos and just general good-ass sports entertainment any day of the week. And that's exactly what this was. Now we get to the Impact Knockouts World Tag Team Championship. Tyne Valkyrie and Rosemary facing off against champions. The Influence, which is Madison Rain. Shout out to her for still doing it in 2022. And Neil Dashwood. First off, crazy how Taya Valkyrie last night was in Tijuana, Mexico and turned it around, made it to Nashville the next night. For some reason, at one point in the match, Matthew Reinhold was talking about Overwatch and esports, and I kind of blacked out for the bulk of the match after that. Influence hits a double stroke, and Taya keeps them away from winning the match. And Tenille winds up getting destroyed by Rosemary, and the odd couple of Valkyrie and Rosemary come out victorious and are your new Knockouts Tag Team Champions. Three links of Boone and good, but wasn't necessarily too interested in the match. It was definitely solid, just not necessarily my cup of tea. Now we get to something that definitely was my cup of tea, and I was looking forward to the second I heard they were doing this, and that is Monster's Ball, bringing it back. And they went full old-school TNA with this, because if you remember back in the day, the Monster's Ball rules were the combatants had to be isolated for 24 hours. It's a great gimmick. No, no light, no food, no water, none of that stuff. Callahan made me laugh because he said he wanted to live in the darkness now, which was great. The whole thing with Moose, he struggled with the adjustment to the light in the early going of the match. Callahan took advantage from the jump, started beating Moose with the baking sheets. Then Moose responded with a trash can lid, hit him with the top of it, basically busted open Callahan pretty quickly. And I appreciate the nice little touch with Moose taking food and water from a fan. Basically took a hot dog and some water from a fan. And again, these two were deprived of food and water for 24 hours. That was a nice little touch. Sammy legit busted open. They had a great sign that kept showing up throughout the night that I have to bring up. MGF wears Superman underwear outside his pants. That popped me in a big way. Moose chokeslam Callahan through a table and starts just grabbing even more plunder, throwing it into the ring. Teases pilmanizing him with a chair after he had been injured with his ankle, was out for several months. But Callahan moves out the way and starts just attacking him. And then Moose winds up teasing the spear at one point. And in one of the coolest moves, I think, of the year and one of the best counters I've ever seen in a hardcore match, the spear gets countered by a trash can because he winds up throwing the trash can at him to where he basically got caught in the trash can for several minutes. That popped me. Callahan takes out a barbed wire door, sets up in the corner. Moose tries to catch up and climb up the top rope. But Sammy tossed him off into the timekeeper's table. I mean, he just ate all of that. Callahan broke out the thumbtacks in the asylum, and he pays for it with Moose hitting him with a massive sky high onto the tax for two. 
He started dragging him through the tanks like he was trying to get some more of those studs if he was playing Lego Star Wars or something like that. I absolutely love that spot. Moose set up for the spear again, but Callahan countered, hit a DVD Death Valley driver into the barbed wire door for about 2.9. This was insane from this point on. Yeah, these two exchanged trash can shots. Sammy hit the cactus driver 97 onto the tax for about 2.9. He teases another one, but Moose catches him with a low blow. Moose puts him on the top rope and also has a basically a trash can stacked upside down. And that he pays for it, gets a power bomb on the back of the trash can, and Moose kicks out of another one, cactus driver at one, just no sells it. It's in, like crowd goes nuts, he goes insane. But all of a sudden, Moose breaks, excuse me, Sammy Callahan breaks out a barbed wire bat, smashes him with it. A third cactus driver gives the death machine the win for Lake Sabuda, and not necessarily the most technical match, but. Damn it, these two went at it. It was an absolute war and was exactly as advertised. Now we get to the Impact World Tag Team Championship match. Good Brothers versus the Briscoes. Match immediately devolved into madness, especially considering it's a blood feud. This worked out really well. And these two immediately just started fighting outside. After the Briscoes cleaned house early on, these two dove to the outside. Mark Briscoe winds up hitting a Cactus Jack-style elbow and then grabs the camera and goes, ah, I absolutely laughed my ass off of that, and I love Mark Briscoe's just insanity in general. The two teams are just brawling on the outside while the officials are trying to get this match back inside the squared circle. Mark had a big tope with an assist from a steel chair. Carl Anderson tossed Jay into a steel chair while the ref was distracted. Had that Wedged into the corner, threw him into that, and then got rid of the plunder. Jay lost a dreadlock at one point in the match, which was insane to see. Big spine buster from Anderson for two. And we see Gallows come in. These two go for the magic killer, but a spear from Jay stops the good brothers. Kind of kill move. Nobody's ever really kicked out of that. Briscoe's hit an elevated neck breaker for two. Jay tried to hit the Jay Driller, but Anderson gets out of it. Doomsday device teased, but an eye poke from Carl gets out of it. And Mark gets hit with a gun stun while he's flying in midair, which looked great, by the way. And they have another Jay Driller attempt, but he gets big booted into oblivion. Good Brothers hit the Magic Killer and get the win. Four links of Buddha, and this was a chaotic match. It's what you expect from these two, and they brought Every last thing. Very good stuff here. Then you had the 10-man tag team match with Honor No More facing off against Team Impact Originals, which was Frankie Gazarian, Motor City Machine Guns, Nick Aldis, and a mystery partner. You wound up having Scott Demore come back in the Team Canada gear, and everybody was wondering, who is it going to be? Who was it going to be involved in this match? Because there was a lot of speculation. Christopher Daniels could have been the guy. But Dixie Carter shows up, introduces the mystery partner, and it makes sense when you really think about it. With Davey Richards, the former tag team partner of Eddie Edwards in terms of the TNA canon. Mind you, they're doing some indie stuff. So it doesn't necessarily work out in that sense, but you know what? It is what it is. Not everybody's watching every indie ever. 
but this was a pure six brawl. Motor City Machine Guns got their vintage offense in. Typical stuff here. It was just wild. Everything going on here. Tons of good action here. PCO almost died after taking a big back bump on the apron. No sold it almost right away. Alex Shelley started to get Team Impact back in the contest with a double slice. Brett, Frankie gets the hot tag. He starts just going off. Nick Aldis starts teeing off on him no more as well, teasing a Texas Cloverleaf on PCO, but Taven stops him. Match really started kicking to fifth gear at this point. Finally get the Wolves squaring off, and Richards is straight just kicking his ass with these big kicks. Very much loving what I'm seeing from these two. Richards hit a double ankle lock on both Edwards and Taven. They wound up just getting a bunch of submissions in and everything, but PCO broke it all up. Richards hit the double stomp for two. Saban winds up getting distracted by Maria, but Tracy Brooks, who makes her return to TNA as well, or Impact, excuse me, comes out, takes her out. Kaz hits the flux capacitor on PCO, and right when I saw that spot, I'm like, holy hell, this match is getting good. Kenny King runs in while the ref's down. D'Lo Brown comes out, hits sky high on King, and then hits the lowdown on him. They go outside the ring. Motor Motor City Machine Guns have a super kick party of their own, and then Saban hits the cradle shock on PCO. Earl Hebner, rest in peace to David Hebner. You have Earl Hebner at his age coming into the ring, counting the pinfall, and Team Impact gets the win. Three and a half links in Boudin. Definitely an overbooked match. Definitely had its typical TNA fare, but damn, I had fun watching it. Queen of the Mountain match, Mia Yim, Jordan Grace, Deanna Perrazzo, Chelsea Green, all vying for the Knockouts Championship, hold, held by Tasha Steeles. And yet a special guest enforcer, one Mickey James. Great to see her in impact, especially considering some of the history she has with some of the Knockouts division. First off, Jordan Grace, she's always looked good, but damn, she is just looking insane right now. A lot leaner, more defined. And you can tell that she was more than ready for this opportunity. Typical multi-person man spots here. Everyone diving out of the ring. Tasha Steele's got put into the penalty box by Green. A little bit of a botch count by the ref. A lot of having to redo the three count. Just didn't look good. Perrazzo also qualified for the match after Yim qualified. She wanted to block it in. Tasha Steele's into a submission hold. She tapped out. Really fun match here. Dropkick by Yim off the top of the cage, off the penalty box, excuse me, onto Green into the ladder. Mickey James interferes as Chelsea Green tries to climb the ladder. Turns out she didn't ask for it, I guess is the explanation that you can kind of give. Mind you, the whole time, the former aide in English kept being a heel in this star thing. But she gets laid out, and I mean, Steels was just bumping like crazy all throughout this match. But the big highlight is here where Chelsea Green and Deanna Prazo are both climbing the ladder. But Mia Yim pushes the ladder over, and they had stacked up table, table set up early on in the match. But when they hit that, I was like, oh my God, they just ate all the crap in the world on this one. It was one of the worst spots. It's just ugh, rough, but somehow, some way, those two, I, I guess, are okay. But then Grace hits the muscle buster on Steels, pins her, qualifies, and now you have two wrestlers that are incapacitated outside the ring. Then two more who are basically in the penalty box. He's she's gonna take full advantage 
and wins as Queen of the Mountain and new knockouts champion. Four and a half links of Buddha. This match slapped completely deserved moment for Jordan Grace, who had been a champion during COVID, but just hadn't had a great run compared to what she should have had. At least my personal opinion. Now we get to the Impact World Championship match, Eric Young versus Josh Alexander. And the video package in and of itself was amazing. And it's even more amazing because they chronicled a lot of Eric Young's career in TNA. And when you look at his TNA career, it's insane because you start off, he was kind of like a lackey goon for Team Canada. Not necessarily winning a whole lot of matches, but was a regular feature in the program that eventually became the the paranoid don't fire Eric guy that got him over big, all that stuff. You start to see him have this new character where he was paranoid and afraid of all the stuff. Then super Eric wound up happening kind of was a comic relief guy. Then created the world elite was trying to be serious. We're not going to talk much about the world elite. Cause that was not a great thing that happened. Then he had almost a Eugene type gimmick, which again, not the best kind of look comedic figure again with ODB. Then he wound up finally winning the world title while also still being somewhat of a comedic heel. Then started to turn more towards the dark side with the WWE for a while and then came back and was even more sadistic than he was when he, when he left. And that entire thing is, was amazing. The fact you kind of think about his his teenage career and his entire arc from start to finish, it's kind of nuts. Good start to the match between these two. Good feeling out process. Both wrestlers tried to hit moonsaults off the top rope, but missed. They had a double down, but neither man really gave an inch. They didn't stay down for long. Then Cody Diener set a table up on the outside, and Young avoids getting put through it. It's a big elbow drop for two Macho Man style, which looked great. Young goes to the outside and starts tearing up the ring apron, looking to try and do what he did to him before with a pile driver onto the wood. We'll get to that in a moment. Bob out of the sign, tries to run interference, but Alexander was ready for it and went after Diener and Joe Doring. EY hit the stroke on Alexander for two and a half. Young teased the pile driver, but Alexander counters with the ankle lock, but Young gets out of it. EY hit a big black hole slam for two. This is 100% a tribute match for TNA, but honestly, I loved it. Even Alexander went one step further with a BME that landed, got a two. Alexander wound up hitting the Styles Clash for two. Alexander nearly wins it with the ankle lock, but Diener catches the ref with the pocket sand. Josh heads Doring with an angle slam on the outside through a table. Eric Young breaks out the guitar, demolishes Alexander with it for 2.9. Young hits a spike pile driver, but that only gets a two count. I don't know how. That should be a kill move no matter what, but you know what? I understand. Young teased another one, but it was a super pile driver, almost like Rhino driver style. But Josh fought out of it. Another ankle lock, but Young got out of it. Alexander finished the match with a C4 spike on the exposed wood to retain the Impact World Championship. I always say I don't like overbooked matches. But they hooked me here in a lot of different ways. Give me the five links of Budan for this main event. Absolutely deserving. Was hooked. Enjoyed it. Great story being told between these two. Absolutely loved it. 
And also, I love the fact that this felt like akin to a ECW one night stand where it felt like, oh, hey, we're going to have all these former, former people show up. Like that, uh, I can't think of his name right now. Scott Hudson. Okay, there we go. Scott Hudson showed up. Goldilocks showed up. You had AJ Styles, Sting, Kurt Angle, all three of these guys being major parts of TNA's evolution or Impact's evolution as well. And them showing up, doing their little promos, that was a great touch. Honestly, Impact knocked out of the park here. This was one of my favorite shows of the year so far. And one of the best Impact shows from start to finish I've seen in a good while. And I'm saying from top to bottom. Because there's they've had some really good shows in the not too distant past. This just was another step up just in my personal opinion. And I think a lot of people agreed to wind up getting overwhelming thumbs up here from the fan base. I believe this was last I checked. It was about 80% of the fans were voting in favor. Yeah, 83% going thumbs up, 4% thumbs down, and 13 in the middle. Match of the night was definitely a little bit more divisive, but clearly people loved Alexander Young, the main event, a little bit more than Queen of the Mountain. Ultimate X wound up getting dead last. I probably will wind up switching up those two because I liked Ultimate X a little bit more. Just so much intrigue. And I had the fact that you have Speedball Mike Bailey in this match. That was going to be a guaranteed banger. But I appreciate you listening into the Cajun Strong Stop podcast. We'll be back with you hopefully next week, kind of reviewing what happened with Forbidden Door and so much more. So keep it locked right here with the Cajun Strong Stop podcast and subscribe to the podcast today, however you do so, be it through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever. And however you get your podcast. And also leave us a five-star review while you're at it. Talk to you later.